Hello and welcome to Talking Additive, episode 28, Carpet Floor, Concrete Floor, How Our Workplaces Are Changing. This is the third episode in our Future of Work series that started with episode 26. As the world begins to thaw from the COVID-19 pandemic restrictions, we find that the nature of the workplace and the flow of work within companies has changed forever. Additive manufacturing played a unique role in addressing some of the painful vulnerabilities revealed by the fragility of supply chains, trade relations, and the complexity of the products of today. The focus for episode 28 is on the evolution of the modern workplace in the wake of COVID-19, how creative collaboration environments are bouncing back, strengthened with new strategies after a considerable disruption to help participants connect across both domains of knowledge, skill, and geographic distances. Woven through this is an exploration of 3D printing as a means of blending the carpet and concrete floor working environments, not to mention new hybrid and distributed contexts necessitated by safety and geography to bring design, engineering, problem solving, and fabrication into the same arena via changes in how teams prototype, communicate, test, fabricate, and produce their projects and products. And our means of exploring this today will be via a spotlight on the Autodesk Technology Center's Outsight Network, a case study showcasing how this community functions, and within the story, the role of additive manufacturing as an enabling technology with unique capabilities to serve a global network of participants. Featured Autodesk Technology Center staff guests include Yuri Cotaldo, Gabrielle Patton, Ed Coe, and Brian Zhang. Featured members of Outside Network resident teams include David Correa from the University of Waterloo, Marco Cruz from Ambots, and Jerry Evans from Niatech. We will be weaving our way seamlessly from staff interview to resident team interview and back to staff interview over the course of this session to assemble a vibrant portrait of this inspiring, cutting-edge community. More on this and other topics on Talking Additive. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business leaders, innovators, and allies to discuss the impact of adopting 3D printing in their businesses. How does adopting additive manufacturing positively benefit a business today? How is the role of 3D printing evolving within design, manufacturing, education, and our lives, and what will be possible in the future? Welcome to the 28th episode for the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays, every two weeks. Since 2011, Ultimaker has built an open and easy-to-use solution of 3D printers, software, materials, and support ecosystem that enables professional designers, engineers, and manufacturers to innovate every day. Ultimaker prides itself on solutions that are flexible, productive, and scalable. Its global team of over 400 employees work together to accelerate the world's transition to local manufacturing and digital distribution. My name is Yuri Cataldo, and my official role is the development manager for the Autodesk Technology Centers. We are part of Autodesk Research. My role is unique. So the team that I'm on, our job is to scout projects to come and work in our open innovations. And these projects come from customers, from academia, the startup industry, as well as uh, professional organizations from around the world. Particularly what I do is focus in more on the, the startup realm. And so I am our direct contact to 
innovation centers, accelerators, incubators all around the world. And I work with them to discuss the types of, of projects that we are looking to collaborate with. I get to look at what's happening in so many different industries and have conversations with thought leaders and projects that are doing the work in real time. It's, it's the similar reason why we created the technology centers and why Autodesk is interested in them. But rather than just read about what's happening with you know, 3D printing on Mars, I got to watch teams who were participated in the NASA 3D Printing Habitat competition in residence at the Boston Technology Center and hear what they were talking about, listen to their struggles, their, their triumphs, and watch what was happening in real time. And I get to do that in multiple industries as well. It makes these ideas come to life in real time. And, and also, in addition to being part of those and being able to watch them in what we do at the, the technology centers, it's also because of my role, it's going to different accelerators and incubators, academic teams. I often give lectures about what we do and, and where the future of some of our industries are going. And it's working with the next stage of projects in early stage startups, which is what I particularly like to do and help them, you know, help guide them to profitability and in other kind of ways. But it's really being involved intimately in these different types of technologies and organizations that is really exciting. The Autodesk Technology Centers catalyze new possibility of makings through connections, and that is what our main focus is. So what we do is we bring together a global network of innovation leaders, and we help connect them and help them to collaborate. Their collaborations sometimes come with parts of Autodesk, with each other, or just within their own teams. But that is, we are a connection engine around the world to different teams and, and projects. And so we have a couple of different versions of this. We have our global network, which is called the Outsight Network. And again, we bring together forward thinking ideas and innovators, and we help empower them uh, to explore the new possibility. But we also have data-enabled fabrication workshops. And these are physical spaces in San Francisco, Boston, and Toronto, where teams can co-locate and physically work in these spaces to innovate and iterate on new designs and workflows. The team that I'm on, we each have a, a unique role in this. And part of what makes us really good at our roles is that we each approach it from a different angle. So my background is different from the other members of my team who have backgrounds in design and architecture and manufacturing. And so we have, in one way, a large directive of find and scout interesting projects to come into the space. And there's a small group of us who do this. But on a, a smaller scale, like for me particularly, it has been focusing in on some of my own items that, are into, that I'm intellectually curious about that work in conjunction with the technology centers. And so particularly now it's been startups in, in Europe and in APAC. And so I'm working with a team in Japan, a team in Singapore. We're also working in Germany and the Netherlands. And I get to have great conversations with just with these wonderful organizations who just tell me what's happening. And that's oftentimes where I start from. 
I know in general, as the technology center, we're looking for projects in very specific areas. So what's happening in the future of construction, manufacturing, and design, which is very, like, that's a wide net because that incorporate, incorporates AI and robotics and a few other elements. And so there's a wide net within there. And so I will go to an organization and I will give them a presentation about who we are and what we do. And we just have a conversation about what their focuses are, what projects are they seeing, what industry trends they're watching. And then we dig in deeper. And then I take that back to the rest of, of my team and we have discussions about it. And then we are now starting to really look at what teams are coming in and to be part of our, our outside network. And so we are looking at uh, what they're working on, what their future is in their particular areas and how they can contribute to both their project, but also the, the network in general. And so it's a very, say, laser focused approach that we have been taking and that I get to take on this. But because of it, I get to have amazing conversations. And at the end of the day, not every team I chat with is a good fit, even if they are in the construction, manufacturing, design space. Sometimes for whatever it is that they want or need, it's not something that is best suited for our organization. But as part of what we do, because we're connected to so many other organizations, I now get to steer them into some other place that is. If they're not a good fit for what we do, maybe they're a good fit for another incubator, accelerator, or even venture team that we're connected to that could help them out. Talking about the role of additive manufacturing at our desk technology centers, outside network, how do you see additive manufacturing and 3D printing being leveraged across the participants? What we've been noticing more and more are a larger variety of teams coming in and additive manufacturing in multiple angles. And so what we're seeing now is additive manufacturing popping up in construction and manufacturing. We've also seen the idea of rapid prototyping coming across most teams who are physically co-located in one of our data-enabled fabrication workshops because they're able to rapid prototype their ideas quickly. It's been a year now since I've been able to walk around the Boston Technology Center and see these projects. But the one thing I do remember noticing distinctly is that each of the projects, if they were making drones or they were physically making the sculptures, large sculptures installations or smaller sculpture installations, all of them, when you ask them, had an element of 3D printing to their items because it was the easiest way for them to take advantage of the 3D printers that we had on staff to rapidly you know, iterate and prototype around what they were doing. And they would then do that first and then move to larger scale items that they would be crafting in another way. Not all of them then ended 3D printing what they were doing, but from chairs to chandeliers to drones to everything else, I've seen versions of 3D printed objects and they are getting better and better and better every single time. So in addition to concepts like distributed manufacturing, when you think about it and talk about it pre-COVID, uh, a lot of people saw it only as doing mass manufacturing close to the, the end users. But now people have more nuanced range of understanding of it. They realize they can have, even across their organization, they can have th 3D printing endpoints that 
allow one team to leverage design skills over here to help a fabrication process or communicating across companies. Like, here's what I meant, printing it out on both sides and having a conversation around an object or a visual representation of the object. That kind of stuff seems to have started to appear more. And I'm wondering if you've seen that in terms of the the way that some of these cutting edge, up and coming companies thinking about how they can disrupt and change things. Are they stitching those kinds of concepts into the way they work on their projects together? We have noticed a definite uptrend in that happening during the pandemic. I know has happened in many industries and that teams who are disconnected because of not being able to physically be in the same location had to then make do and adapt. And it's been happening in many industries, particularly in manufacturing. And so what has happened is that a team from one area will design a part or design part of an object, send it over to another team that's in a different geographic location, and they will make edits and updates. And then in our instances, that finalized part design will then come to one of the technology centers where one of the shop staff employees will potentially modify it. But in the end, they will be the ones to 3D print it in various types of, of materials. And then they will then you know, showcase and test the final part and then bring those results back to these distributed teams who then can make edits and, and updates and, and give feedback. But all of this has happened without anybody traveling anywhere, you know, distributed technology. Well, so then let's take this a little wider and talk about changes that happened in general. How has the workplace changed? You have this unique outside network full of domain experts and, and people with questions. In, in the past, the geography was more the central focus. Can you talk about what that journey was like to really boost that global conversation? Before COVID, you are, you're right. We were a very geography-based. So in, in general, because of how our data-enabled workshops were set up, if a team was, was local or you had to travel to one of those locations, because that's what we were focused on, the, the, the prototyping. Once COVID hit and landed then and everything closed, the, every company around the world had to rethink what they were doing and how to integrate you know, this new world into their setup. And the technology centers were no different. What we have been able to do is to translate almost exactly the physical experience virtually. And so teams, they don't get 100% the exact same experience. You're, you're not going to be prototyping you know, in the technology centers. But the other elements that really make our centers unique, the collaboration, the connections, training, being able to have conversations with individuals from around the world got exemplified and, and turned on in a larger sense because everybody was looking for connection and collaboration online. And so we were able to take advantage of that and grow our connections, collaborations, the, the technology center outside network in general, much larger than it was before. It allowed us to go global, which in the past had been a little bit of uh, an issue because not all teams can travel to the United States or to Canada for various reasons. There's a lot of uh, cost prohibitive reasons for there. But if nobody is traveling and what we're trying to do is to collaborate in a different way 
and is the easy way to do it. And that's what we were able to do. And that has allowed us to, and to focus on new areas, new industries, new countries that we wouldn't have before because we needed to adapt to this new environment that was just turned on. So we've always been connected to international teams. What's particularly happening now is that we've been able to focus in our efforts on international teams in new regions that we wouldn't have been able to collaborate with in the past. For example, Japan. Now, Japan has multiple opportunities and Autodesk has a large presence there. But in the past, we had not been able to work directly with some large uh, customer teams or other startups, accelerators, incubators in Japan. And the way that the, the world changed and our transition to that allowed us then to having deeper connections with parts of Autodesk research to teams in Japan. We've been able to do the same thing with teams in Singapore, teams in Germany, teams in the Netherlands, organizations in the past that, again, wouldn't have been able to work out with us because they couldn't travel over to the United States for a project. Suddenly, borders didn't matter. What mattered was we could get individuals in the same Zoom room at the same time to then start working on this collaboration. And what also happened with these is, again, as I mentioned before, the designs or the ideas would come from one area of the country, and then we would be able to work on it at the technology centers as part of our shop staff. And then send those ideas back to another part of the country for another time and then collaborate that way. It's allowed for a new type of, of interactions with companies. What's wonderful about the, the technology centers network, as well as the connected workshops, is that we are in one way a, a Swiss army knife of opportunities. When we bring in teams, we present them with multiple opportunities and possibilities to rethink what they were doing. And what we've noticed is, as I've brought up in the past, when a team is coming in and they need to make a, a prototype of some sort, they have to do it quickly and efficiently. And so steering them toward additive manufacturing, taking advantage of the many 3D printers that we have has been a benefit to them and to our team because it allows us to encourage them again to look at their designs from a new way and a new angle. It also allows them to get better hands-on experience with their objects. And so what in the past companies, this actually usually comes from larger organizations, but in the past organizations that would have just sent off their designs to somebody else and somewhere in another place to, to build, now get hands-on experience as part of the technology centers, but particularly in the early stages when they're just trying to get some prototypes done, it's the most efficient way for them to 3D print it in a couple of different materials so they understand the properties and what it looks like. And then from there, iterate even further in their design process. As we move, hopefully, towards the end of COVID and the Autodesk Technology Centers, for example, are gearing up for phased kind of reentry of, of the physical workshops, what are some of the things that were opportunities discovered during COVID that are likely to remain strong forces? in the outside network going forward? 
and some areas to maybe consider processes, communication methods, ways to collaborate, ways to produce things. As everything is starting to open up and return to some sense of normalcy, <laughs> what we've been noticing and across all of this is the the evolution of what's been happening in innovation just continues to increase. And so in the beginning stage, we're watching the digitization of a lot of elements suddenly get ramped up and, and sped up because individuals couldn't be at the same place at the same time. We're watching collaborations that wouldn't have happened before increase. And so the concept, what we utilize is the open innovation model, which is outside ideas coming in. This idea is becoming more prevalent in different corporations and industries. This idea of, of breaking down walls and borders and IP in the need of quicker collaborations and quicker connections. We're seeing more and more of those happening these days in multiple industries. And so as the technology center outside network continues to evolve and bring in more teams and more individuals, we will continue to see you know, those types of, of areas increase and the amount of organizations looking to be involved in a type of collaboration where they're less interested in what's happening in the IP and they're more interested in the iterative process of connecting to diverse teams from around the world that make their project better. What are some things that you see as exciting opportunities on the horizon for the Autodesk Technology Centers? What's exciting for the Technology Center is because of our ability to pull together so many diverse teams from around the world is leaning into these connections and collaborations and expanding them to other parts of Autodesk as well as other companies and industries in our network. Thank you very much for coming on to Talking Additive and, and sharing about the Autodesk Technology yeah. Centers. Sure. David, welcome to Talking Additive today. Thank you so much for joining for this conversation. No, thank you, much for the invitation. Fantastic to have you. Uh, so my name is David Correa. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Waterloo School of Architecture. My role at the school is to facilitate technology, essentially, across all platforms, from advanced visualization technologies to digital fabrication to computer-assisted design, all this spectrum that basically allows both undergraduate and graduate students to take you know, whatever crazy ideas they're trying to make, whatever kind of socially aware, whatever formal material investigations they want to achieve, and provide them with a spectrum of tools and methodologies to make the best out of those opportunities. And I always try to force them to think not just of the research that they're doing, but also how it might actually connect to their life beyond the school, whether that is in their communities, or whether that means that they're planning to do their own startups, or whether that means that they're looking to do or teaching or further academic studies. That's the role that I play at the school. Uh, how did you first encounter 3D printing? No, that's, that's a really good question. And I wish I could tell you that I was a strategic about 3D printing in some ways. Like I wish I could tell you, you know what, I knew the piece of equipment, I had this specific idea and I went for it. So I was in Germany in the Institute for Computational Design and Construction in Stuttgart. And at some point, someone thought that we should get a 3D printer. No good reason for it. We just thought we should have one. There was none in the building at the time. And so this, this 
tool sort of appeared. And at the time there was some, I was doing some work in hygroscopic expansion, which is basically creating composites that with wood and another material. And we're looking at how moisture sort of allows material to expand and contract. And I just said, well, this 3D printer is here. No one is using it. What would it, what would it look like to use this? How do we translate from finding a material like wood? Because we used to just find a piece of wood, cut it or find a veneer and then try to figure ways to create what we call bilayers, which is one thing has more expansion. The other one has less expansion and that creates a differential, much like a thermostat works in your home, which is a, a bimetal, a bilayer bimetal. So I, I thought, I know, I had a, a very elementary idea of what additive manufacturing was. I understood that there was a slicer. I understood that you can build this thing layer by layer. The first time I actually seen a 3D printed piece was in my master's. And it was the kind of 3D printed piece where I got a file, I sent it to a guy in a shop, and the guy in the shop brought me this thing. And then I saw all the mistakes I made in the design because the thing were too thin or I was too overambitious. But this time I had this machine for myself. And I was like, okay, what do I do with this? I started to think as an architect and I started to think about every kind of line of material being its unique thing, like it has its own properties. And I started to think, okay, well, how do I start to design the way the material is organized? I don't know when I first started working with it that I understood the number of design dimensions that this technology were open for me. And since then at Waterloo and in my work, I have one Prusa here sitting in my living room that I'm, I'm modifying at the moment. And I have another maker bot. I have two Ultimakers. We have three clay printers from different scales. We have, I think in total, I have no less than 15 or 20 different types of 3D printers that we work at different scales, in addition to the robots, in addition to CNC machines, and in addition to uh, a wider spectrum of all other tools, all of them sort of working in tandem or working together to help the students and help the researchers that I work with to create cool stuff, essentially, that has a design component, a functional component, and ideally can provide some impact to some capacity. I think your introduction to additive is so amazing because unlike almost everyone else who comes in, really, if you take that, someone coming in from an engineering perspective where they want a prototype of a part, they're usually expecting that the technology they're using is ironing out, you know, hygroscopic risks, fighting asymmetries of various sorts, and making something that's as like a cast homogeneous part as possible. Mm -hmm. But you started exactly with what the technology really is and exploiting it in really interesting ways. How, if you start to think about this technology as a process, so it's like you came in right at the highest level of abstract consideration of this as a material process. What is the most fascinating is that additive manufacturing became this, in essence, catalyst for different expertise to come in and contribute. So we had, as you probably know, computational designers were like, oh, we can do these cool algorithms that optimize load concentrations, right? So there's topology optimization that whether it is topology optimization of a design or topology optimization of the part itself based on infill gradients, that's really cool. And that means that I don't have to draw the, the basically the toolpath, but this thing can optimize based on where I understand the part might have some issues. And then we had material scientists being like, how do I optimize best possible 3D print polymer that has the best you know, addition, interfacial bonding between the layers, that it has the best surface quality, that is the most mechanically efficient for a multitude of options. 
Then we have architects, designers, and people in manufacturing trying to figure out where does this play a role for us? We had consumers really pushing that. This is cool. Like people can make this amazing stuff. Like what is it that we can do? Um, and all these communities that came from there trying to figure out the place. And since then, it keeps growing. I, I read papers about universities that are actually calculating how much you can save on your lab by printing certain mechanical equipments and adapters and pieces. I know for myself that we have saved a significant amount of money by printing components in our Ultimaker just because I can get it made out of milled CNC uh, aluminum and it will cost us $600. But you know, here we have this Ultimaker and the part is not, doesn't have the same mechanical properties, but most of the time you don't need the strength of the aluminum. <laughs> Right? Not every time. And then we, we found that there's a growing community of resources that start to make unique cases. And, and it's, again, bringing scientists who are looking at the economic scientists who are looking at the, the applications, scientists who are looking at the material properties, designers. I'm looking at biologists, for instance. This is the work that I do is that they're like, okay, we used to do all this work where we understood how, for instance, a plant will open. And we know that there is mechanisms, uh, for instance, welting. The plant is too much sun, so the plant figures out, okay, how do I reduce my heat gain so I will welt, I will kind of fold in and reduce that. So we understood that that's done by the way the conduits in the tissue are organized. Okay, but could we reproduce that? Okay, and that's where the reprinting comes in because now they're like, oh, I'm excited about this. I know it in concept, but now how do I apply it? For us in architecture, a little bit is also how we you know we understand with structural engineers how the load path should go in concept, right? But now you have to design them and figure out, okay, can 3D printing get us to that level of resolution? So it's been an exciting way to bring different expertise into the conversation through the process of making, essentially, and, and testing and iteration, which is what 3D printing allows to do. Like any part that we've done is like three that don't work, and then you learn about what you actually learn about the problem that you're having and you're learning by making. We are now, I think, in a very interesting time in, in, in the world, I think. Like my office, my architecture practice is in Shanghai and we do a wide range of projects. We won the best building of the year for a bamboo lattice structure. Really fantastic project. And that often we still have a partner or someone in Portugal. We have people in China. We have people in Canada. And we have to find, we've done this actually since 2016. So pre-pandemic, we have to find ways to communicate and to uh, iterate and to be able to, to show our design ideas. I have worked with Sony before. I have worked with other sort of international agencies on different projects. And, and we just simply have to find these tools. So in research, is not so different. So I have done projects with researchers that I have never really met in person, but we have aligned interest. And we have found the publications probably was the first thing that came. I think I probably you have opened a Google Doc and added lines to things here and there. But that then translated to Zoom meetings and now is translating to the distribution of our own manufacturing tools, our own research tools. And in this case, we have researchers in France, researchers in Japan, researchers in Germany, and researchers in Canada. And we're all approaching some of the same design questions, some of the same technical questions, but we all have a different perspective. So I might be more on the 
design of the structure. Someone else might be on the testing of the mechanical properties. Someone else might be looking at manufacturing, even the materials that we're working with. So someone who's a material scientist might be like, you know what, I have this really cool material, but I don't know everything about it. They did some tests based on their standards and they may say, could you figure something that could be use some of the properties that we know it has? But we don't, we're not so good at the G code. We're not so good at the digital tool. How do you use that? And then we have someone, for instance, a mechanical engineer who says, I can tell you how to make the best printer to use that material. So then we get all these files and all these instructions and we start to optimize it. So if I, you know, make a better part for this, then I send the instructions to them and they then replace that part on their machine. If someone runs into an issue, then we update sort of that information and then we can continue to, to develop. So that's the story. And we hope that we can continue to do that kind of work. And it's been, I think it's been a, a tremendously enriching opportunity because I think working, for instance, with a university in Japan or France, or even in the best of times, you have to go there and work there for, you know, three months, or if you're lucky, three months, if you're not lucky, it's probably a trip of a week or two. And then you come in and either you have to buy the exact same equipment or it becomes this issue. But now we're actually being able to, to be very, very agile at collaborating. Let's take a little bit of time to talk about your research collaborations with Autodesk Technology Centers. Yes, so absolutely. I had three collaborations with them. The first one, we looked at offsetic structures. So in this case, we shifted from clay, we shifted from fused filament fabrication, we moved into stereolithography, and we were looking at how to create very interesting lattices that could reduce impact, particularly working with elderly community and trying to understand, let's put it differently, where, how can smart materials help our aging in place process? Where are the key areas, strategic areas where they can play a role? And this was a work with Ellie Cho, which was a graduate student that I was supervising. So we started working with Autodesk as part of the outside network. At the time, they have a, a printer that we really were interested to, to test because of the scale, the different applications. Unfortunately, COVID kicked in. So those plans were squashed at an untimely time. But the second dimension, which was also equally and possibly more important, was to be able to connect with other like-minded individuals to, in my case, to support my student to start to see perhaps the potential and limitations of her approach to connect to other people who were targeting the same issues, probably in different dimensions and see how they were moving through that process, how they were, uh, for instance, whether or not their, their startup was successful, was it an avenue that would be worth pursuing? Was it their other institutions that have similar questions or places? Autodesk has been a key player in Toronto. They're based here and they've done fantastic work in a number of scales uh, with us in academia, but also with a number of companies. And we thought that it was a good resource to, to really have a close relationship with. Um, so that was how we started the discussion. Since then, I have two students who are working in clay printing, James Clark Hicks and Isabella Choa, and they're translating some of this work that I show you today with clay printing and trying to figure out how digital tools might actually be able to support, maybe enhance, maybe that optimization can be uh, computationally optimized. Maybe there are... Uh, processes that we haven't explored. Maybe there are dimensions of the work that might be uh, worth pursuing, but also again, to open 
the discussion to a broader audience and get some of that feedback. And their outside network is extremely effective and their team of communications, they have a fantastic engagement ma manager, Matthew Spremoli, and he's just fantastic at finding, not only helping you through their technical means, like, okay, maybe this tool can help you, but also connecting you with people who might be able to, much like yourself, Matt, connecting us to be able to have a, a broader, uh, a larger voice. And maybe in, with that voice, someone, something connects and someone wants to, to work with you. And that's, to me, in my entire practice, whether it's in my work with LLAB at the university, those connections, those interdisciplinary connections, and that network is really essential. It, but I really love that vision of kind of bringing geographies together in these ways, um, even when grappling with situations in which the work at the end of the day can be very much about materials, very much about applied solutions, down to the point where, as you pointed out with the ceramic pieces, you can't really simulate them virtually. You can't fully no, you're predict totally right. them. And you know, if I had a, if I had a, I always think about there's two kind of goals that I would love to have happen within my sort of teaching career. One of them would be to be able to teach a course where, whether it's across the planet, actually, if it were to be across the planet, it would be great, where every student that we're doing this exchange with had their own 3D printer. And we could do the same thing that we do with research, where we're tackling different problems and we have, we're developing the computational tools together. We're developing these things and everybody can actually apply those things locally. That would be super engaging. And we're not there. I mean, it's a huge ask for every student to be able to have access to that, but I think it will happen. And the second thing is that I would love to see uh, a broader network of industry really reaching out to, to academia and really making partnerships that are long lasting and this and it supports the level of innovation that I have seen in my time with BASF, with Masonry Works, with the FII in, in BC, that they're kind of look at what we do and we'll start turning. David, thank you so much for joining Talking Additive today and, and sharing all these thoughts. No, thank you much for the invitation. Very much appreciated. So my name is Gabrielle Patton, and I'm a community manager for the Autodesk Technology Center's Outside Network. How did you first encounter 3D printing? I first encountered 3D printing in 2013. I was in need of a rapid prototyping system, and I found out about 3D printing. I actually got access to some very early FFF machines, and then I needed some higher resolution. And so I got to clean up a workshop in order to print on a Conex 500 machine, so getting some really nice photopolymer prints. And that was my first foray into 3D printing. Fantastic. Uh, what, what kind of uh, pieces were you making? These parts that would be injection molded, uh, there were little tiny connectors for a children's toy, and they're collectible, modular, interchangeable, you could swap them out. And I needed to test some form factors in order to make sure I was committing to the right injection mold, which was a lot of money for me <laughs> just out of college. I got to a first injection molded run of about 5,000 parts. I, w I had this vision that I would turn into this product and, and launch it, launch to Kickstarter. It just, it was a little bit too early and it didn't eventually go to market. I felt like it turned into a really good education in digital manufacturing versus the I original idea of, you know, launching a children's toy and product line. But I do look back on that time fondly and that kind of introduction to 3D printing because it kind of ended up launching my whole career at Autodesk. Those initial machines that I got access to were some of Autodesk's first machines and what they called the Annex back in those mm -hmm. days. 
And those machines would eventually go live in the San Francisco Technology Center. You know, I was really excited to get to use professional level machines. And I was trying to be really respectful to the lab manager then, cleaning up the, the workshop as I waited for these two-hour prints to finish. And he asked me for my resume and told me they were building out a new space. And so I came in as a contractor to build out the San Francisco Technology Workshop and be like hands on deck to start opening boxes and bolting machines down to the ground and spent about six months building out that space and welcoming Autodesk employees in. And so I ended up landing the the 3D print shop manager uh, role on the shop staff team and started spending lots of time taking care of machines, keeping them running, and teaching our residents and Autodesk employees how to use them. And I would find myself there for the past eight years. I've been at the technology centers for a long time, and especially when it comes to the San Francisco location, have watched it grow and evolve in so many different ways and turn into the amazing space that it is today. People come in and they, they have their vision and their dream that they want to do, and you have to bring it down to reality a little bit and show them the way and give them the ropes to, to do it themselves. And one thing that I always loved about being in the additive shop was kind of getting exposure to these really interesting projects and working with these the founders, the engineers, the designers, all of the people that were trying to do something new. And I really found that energy infectious and really interesting. So part of me would also be connecting people and, and trying to encourage people to give talks and teach me what they know, and then also teach the community in that sense. And so I think really early on, some of the things that I do a lot in my role today were things that I would also be drawn to in my role as an, the additive lead. And yeah, about two and a half years ago, I then switched to become the community manager for the San Francisco residency and really got to go full-time and putting my energy and focus and into the resident projects and the resident community of the Outside Network. And that's been just a really exciting, fun time. The Autodesk Technology Center's Outside Network is a global community of startups, academic teams, industry teams, and all coming together and each one is launching their own project, they have their own goals, but no matter where they're located, they can all influence and inspire each other and illuminate where things are going in, in the industries that Autodesk serves and the industries that so many of us are a part of. So the community itself has grown tremendously in the past three years. We currently have over 150 active resident teams. And historically, we are bringing on teams that would be in our three physical technology centers in North America, Boston, Toronto, and San Francisco. And during the pandemic, we've expanded that community to include teams all around the globe. And so that's been a big shift for us. So the Outside Network is the Technology Center's Global Innovation Network. And it includes resident teams from industry, academic, and entrepreneurial sectors. And they're all working towards accelerating researching design and make processes in their own kind of fields of study. It's provided a lot of really exciting opportunities to be more inclusive, regardless of geographical location, bring in projects that you know we wouldn't have been able to support before and, and find new collaborations for the teams that are in our physical locations, but also that touch markets and other cultures around the world. And how do these new outside network 
community residents participate and really draw value from working with each other and with the staff like yourself? Our global teams are still related to exploring the future and how things are made. But the difference is that more of their projects can be exploring digital solutions for how things are made or exploring network solutions. Sometimes a big part of innovation is connecting to a bunch of experts around the world and learning something and putting that back into your research and development. And so we've been able to expand the types of projects that we can accept. So we still definitely have teams that are fabricating during the pandemic, trying to find access to machines, trying to find workflows that are going to allow them to move their physical designs forward. But we've also been able to expand and bring in teams that are building generative design solutions or analysis and feedback into the design process, tools that are in modern day society like inherently required for the the general fabrication technologies that we use today. But it is exciting to have those kind of experts and projects now make up a good portion of our resident community. How is additive manufacturing and 3D printing being leveraged at the Autodesk Technology Centers? I would break it up into two main veins that I'm seeing today. And the first one being is that when you close your physical locations that have had nonstop community presence for years, this is a time that you can reflect on the space, reflect on the tools and make sure that your space is representative of where things are at today and where you want it to be. We've been able to explore new additive technologies, new materials, new ways of connecting our machines. We've been able to refresh and expand our additive capabilities that we can offer teams through expanded material libraries or new machines. And then the other side of the equation is that additive has been a really useful role in in supporting residents that are not on site. Out of all the fabrication technologies that are in our space, additive is probably one of the most accessible ones that we can provide value. We can throw some prints on, we can get them to some of our residents regardless of where they are. And it is a little bit an easier lift. It's, It's still a big lift, but it it feels a little bit more accessible than taking on projects for some of the other machines. And it also played a role in the COVID PPE efforts that we saw happening all around the world. All of our different shop teams across sites were able to use our additive machines to prototype new respiratory designs, new components for face shields, and really run our machines like they haven't been run before, just nonstop, constantly, <laughs> 24 hours a day. I'm, I was just so impressed with our shop team and how they came through there. And then also an extension out to the resident community. There is numerous teams that were leveraging additive to print new types of respirators, print new medical devices and systems that can help fight the, the global pandemic at the time. And that was really an exciting use of the technology over the past year that we saw pop up all around our resident teams and shop staff. I talked to Ed from San Francisco and yeah. Brian Jung from Toronto about some of their opportunities to, to work as subject matter experts with outside network members who were finding routes to 3D print where they were, using other service bureaus and other technologies that were new to mm-hmm. them to sort of make things work, even if they didn't have access to that you know, wealth of machines sitting there. Did you 
see any of those processes? And do you have any thoughts about you know, how the outside network was able to leverage some of the expertise that they have? And you obviously have a lot of expertise yourself. It was a frequent question that popped up on our Slack channels. Mm -hmm. Residents need parts. They need to produce things. They had historically planned on having access to the amazing Autodesk Technology Center's physical workshops. And so once really shops all around the world were shutting down, it really became a challenge to find access to tools. And there were a number of initiatives internally, resident-led and shop staff-led, where people were gathering resources together on where they could produce parts, where they could get access or get work done. And still to this day, it's such a great resource on Slack that residents can ask the entire community. And of course, we have experts like Ed and Brian to respond and give suggestions. But just as often, residents will also speak up and be like, oh, this was a great person, call call here to order this material or to get this work done. And so that's con a constant thing that I think it happened before the pandemic and it just, that was often like around how to order material. And now it's like, how do we do everything? How do we get access to tools? How do we produce? And then of course, the, the next step after prototyping is how do we start manufacturing these things. Autodesk itself, one of the reasons I've been here so long and really enjoy working at Autodesk is that it touches on so many different industries, so many different projects. And I, I really find that kind of exposure really exciting and it drives a lot of the joy that I have at working at Autodesk. And so even with all the expertise and knowledge of Autodesk, I think there's something to be said about having a large community of experts and knowledge from outside of your own bubble. And I think that's really an interesting resource that the outside network brings. And that is experts even will accept a really exciting AI team. One of them is called uh, Duality Robotics. And so they are they're basically training synthetic AI in virtual environments like Unity. And you can run these AI systems that are going to be driving our cars through test cases that you would be really difficult to recreate in the real world. Difficult crashes that maybe only happen once, you know, every so often, and you don't get enough data to train the AI, you can do that in a virtual space. The, the residents that you'd expect on the team are AI experts, design experts. And then it turns out they also have someone who build autonomous tractors and giant machines for Caterpillar. And the you have the ex, the expertise that you expect from residents, and then they'll have an this one person on their team that has this crazy other <laughs> knowledge set that you didn't even realize. And so when you throw all of these different teams together, they bring so much than what's on the face value of their project that there's always these really nice surprises when you get to leverage the outside network, when you get to ask just scattershot questions across the whole community and see what comes up. It's exciting for our residents to get those answers. And it's also exciting for the staff because we're like, oh, we didn't realize this whole other aspect of this resident project until that other team asked a, the right question to bring it forward. So that's one of the strongest, I think, benefits of that, having something like the outside network in a company like Autodesk. I'd love to hear about some of the geographies involved. Okay, yeah. The, the range of topics, even if you can't dive all the yes, way down. Yes, So within the outside network, you have over 150 active resident teams today. And as you start to you know, dive into the details of who those teams are, you start to see that 
First, there's a core group of teams that are based out of San Francisco, Toronto, and Boston. But then you start to see other pockets emerge that are in the Asia Pacific region or Europe, Africa, even Central and South America. And there was a specific focus on Japan for a quarter. Mm -hmm. So Autodesk has a really solid presence in Japan. And we've been bringing on a lot of teams in Japan, specifically around AEC-focused teams, mm -hmm. uh, a couple of those being Takanaka, which is a you know a very historic, large um, construction company, as well as some smaller startups there. And then a lot of like sustainability-minded teams throughout Europe, as well as some other AEC teams in Europe, and then some really awesome teams throughout Africa. And I guess we do have a number of teams in Australia as well. So the, the teams really are coming from all over the place right now. There are some really nice examples of resident teams that are not based in our physical sites, but are in, based in other parts of North America as well. Supporting teams in Arkansas, Georgia, other parts of Canada has been pretty exciting as well. There's a lot of Autodesk offices throughout the world that we would love to support folks in that region, but we haven't really had a large presence. And so it's these growing use cases of teams, whether they're manufacturing focused and or construction, AEC design, or, or more likely is probably converging across multiple of those vectors. Yeah, there's, and one thing about managing the community is you're looking for different folks that can influence each other and different folks that you would want to introduce and connect for mutual benefit. And so you're always looking for new ways to pull data from the community, to sort the community for interesting connections and also subgroupings. Like in the last year, the amount of teams that are focused on connected machines, data on the shop floor, pulling data off of every single machine used for manufacturing has skyrocketed. And I don't know if that's just because artists is focusing on it as well, but these trends emerge and then you have all these really smart people say, okay, that's exciting. I want to do my take at it. And you get all of these really amazing competing companies trying out different takes on a topic. And so we get to see these little pockets emerge within the community around a specific topic and and then figure out ways how do we connect them highlight it do we have panel series do we have talks do we have a team host a design crit and have other folks give them feedback and tear apart their design and challenge them and where they're going so i think those kind of subgroupings and it could also be along a cultural lens how do we better support some of these new emerging groups of residents in japan who prefer a different way of working than we work with our North American-based teams. And those are things that you have to figure out and iterate and test out different strategies and then try something new. But when you have a large community, you don't just have one example of that technology. Like with 3D printing, we have maybe 15 teams, maybe more that thematically touch on that area. And then it's, what can you do with that community instead of an individual, just what can you do with an individual project? And I think it gets really exciting. Each of the, the residents I've talked to so far have, have really pointed out that they have found networking and communicating uh, with each other and gaining insights to be really of critical importance. So it seems like this, is, this has been a very rewarding community to be a part of. Do you want to maybe dis describe some of the kinds of things that you do that, that really put these teams together? It's really important to our program. 
it's something that we tried a bunch of different strategies around and we continue to innovate on. And it's something that's also challenging because we went from being fully in person to fully remote and taking advantage of all the remote different, obviously Zoom, but there's so many other platforms that have emerged around holding conferences and allowing teams to have breakout rooms. And do we record the a new team talking about their project and then the folks that are interested can jump into their breakout room to talk to them more. And we've experimented a ton over the last year. And then on the other side of that is you begin to see Zoom fatigue. And we can use every tool under the sun to, to introduce teams together. And that's email introductions, Slack introductions, putting recordings out on video, Zoom calls. We've done so many share outs where we just get all the resins together on a call called the Resin Ideas Exchange and go around the room, share updates. But at the end of the day, if you've had eight eight Zoom calls already, you're probably Zoomed out on, on engaging in that. And so you always have to keep it fresh a little bit and f- keep trying new things. And something that worked for during the pandemic six months ago probably doesn't work as well now. And then you have to adjust. So I know the pandemic is improving in some places and backpedaling in others. And with the Delta variant right now, there's the question on everyone's mind is, are we going to continue to go in a positive note? But I think we're looking forward to a hybrid future where we get all the new skills and tools that we've developed in the past year to, you know, enable collaborations, connections across a global network while also taking advantage of kind of the magic that happens when you connect with someone in person, when you get that spontaneous connection. Oh, yeah. And that concept of of seeing a future that's hybrid, I'm really interested in that. That is something that's one of the things that I'm exploring with this episode is what are some strategies that have come up out of necessity that have been battle tested and will be now in in your work belt as things that you'll use to accomplish things going forward. Yeah, one of them, one thing that's interesting to me is when you're dealing with lots of data, sometimes you need a whiteboard. Sometimes you need to start drawing some shapes, getting some sticky notes together and putting some form to this like feelings and thoughts and in your head about a project. And our team has gotten really good at using kind of digital experiences like Mural or other kind of digital whiteboard experiences to work through concepts with our teams. We've called it lots of different things. One of the terms I really like is daydreaming. Mm. Daydreaming about they had every resource under the sun. If time wasn't an issue, what are some like projects that they would undertake related to their general area of focus? And those are things that we're definitely going to take forward and have resulted in some really cool collaborations. But I'm going to be curious to see, are we going to be whiteboard experts? Like when we go back to use physical tools again together in a room, is it going to be like riding a bike, but now we're like super powered with our mural training? Or is it, (laughs) are we going to have to relearn how to do it in person? Because we don't have like our drop down menu of like sticky notes to just drag over and, and access to like every image in Google search to just add to my whiteboard. So yeah, I'm, I think we're going to have those tools. And the, I think the biggest thing for this might be specific. And I don't think that I think this applies to pretty much everyone, but we're going to have some teams that are never going to come on site. And we're going to have some teams that are going to be on site every day. So how do we how do we keep everyone connected together? And if we want to have an in-person event, how do we make it accessible to the folks that, you know, are not located there so that they can still get the same value that that the folks in 
that are on site are going to get. And it's a, I think it's a challenge for modern teams to navigate because I think so many companies are going to have employees that are fully remote now. And the question is, are they going to miss out? Or is our new way of working going to go really smoothly and it's going to be great? Did you typically work closely with staff at the other locations before? Or is that increased since the arrival of COVID? During COVID, we've greatly increased the amount of time and, and connection points across our own team. I'm on calls all day long now that are with Boston and Toronto folks and San Francisco folks, and then folks that are you know not based in any of those three locations. And it's been really cool because I think we've gotten better at leveraging each other's strengths across the global team. Whereas before we just had a history of on-site work and there's so much going on on each site locally when they're open that you find yourself connecting with the people that are sitting around you. And so I think COVID has equalized global teams and that's something for sure that we'll want to take forward. I think it, it will, there'll be some challenges in, in keeping, sustaining the same level of like global connection. But I think one of the positives will be that we, we have stronger relationships across the team. You know, I feel like I have stronger relationships with my Boston colleagues and Toronto colleagues than I did before the pandemic. There's so many things that have been challenging about this year. And I think that's one of those few things that I think has been just such a great win. We have a really solid global team now. Gabby, thank you so much for being on Talking Adam today and sharing about the uh, Autodesk Technology Center's outside network. Of course. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun and excited to keep learning and seeing where the additive industry heads. Marco, thank you so much for joining Talking Adam today. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I'm glad to be here, Matt. Thanks for having us. My name is Marco Cruz. I'm the CMO at AMBOTS. Ambons is developing Swarm Manufacturing. Swarm Manufacturing is having multiple robots cooperatively work together in order to have automated manufacturing that can support both 3D printing, CNC, uh, maybe down the future, pick and place. But Swarm Manufacturing essentially is the biomimicry of nature and being able to then instill that into manufacturing to be able to have a cooperative ecosystem that can have multiple manufacturing processes happening. How did you first encounter 3D printing? So I was working at the local library here, the Fayetteville Public Library. We're essentially headquartered here in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And my IT manager was uh, telling me that I should be the one manning the machines for 3D printing since they were new hardware equipment that we had just got. So that was, what, a couple months, and I got the gist of what 3D printing can do. Mostly FDM 3D printers, very much educational kits. But that's where I understood a little bit about 3D printing, understood how they operated. And I took that and had some interest level going forward about 3D printing and manufacturing in general. What drove you to explore what became AMBOTS? My background's higher education. I did go to school for computer science engineering, but I realized that I loved entrepreneurship. Before I started my educational background or my career, I had uh, multiple businesses and essentially this this knack to be able to build businesses was something that I was very interested in. And at that moment, uh, we had just gotten one of our 
newest faculty members for the mechanical engineering department, Dr. Wen Chaozhou. He essentially onboarded to the mechanical engineering department with an emphasis to be able to promote additive manufacturing. His conceptual idea was that of swarm manufacturing. That's how it started. Dr. Zhou was trying to essentially now commercialize his research and try to make a company out of it. With my background in 3D printing and my background with understanding how to scale businesses, I thought that I would give it a shot and understand what it would take to be able to commercialize a research-heavy technology. I, I thought to myself, if there's something that this company needs, is it's marketing, being able to voice what exactly we're trying to do since it's a novel idea, very innovative. We're essentially pioneering swarm manufacturing. We are the first ones to be able to take this and actually release a product. You wear many different hats. I cover business development, I cover operations and as well marketing and recruitment as well. The list goes on, especially in the startup world. Ambots is very rooted in education. So this research project that now is a company was developed in AM3 Labs, which is a mechanical engineering laboratory for Dr. Wen Chaozhou. Now, within that development within AM3, we're able to essentially cross-develop with a lot of different teams that are part of the University of Arkansas. And go going forward, we were conceived from research and we're part of the University of Arkansas ecosystem. We definitely take a lot of pride in that. We stay close with academia. So then talk to me about the Autodesk Technology Center's outside network. So what attracted this project to get involved with the Autodesk Technology Centers? The Autodesk Technology Centers, you know, we were fortunate enough to be a resident. One of our target markets, it's AEC. The focus around architecture, engineering, and construction. And we wanted to be able to tap into subject matter experts in the form of architecture firms, architects, general contractors, or product manufacturers for construction. We're trying to gain data, get feedback from these frontline workers that are dealing with digital fabrication technologies. And our architecture firms have been very open arms and giving us some feedback as well as giving us pilot projects, getting design guidelines with technology that really caters to the construction industry and the architecture and engineering fields. So with Swarm Manufacturing, the promise is to have essentially multiple robots working together in order to increase productivity. We do plan to, essentially when we launch our first product, we will be FDM 3D printing technology. This platform is scalable, meaning that it operates on a modular floor system. And this really opens up the, the value proposition for size as well as speed. You can add as much floor space as you need depending on the 3D printed object that you need. If you have an object that is very large and you want to finish it in a certain amount of time, then you can add multiple robots that will cooperatively print together to be able to increase that speed. We can provide value for those that are going to be doing large pieces in construction, be it that from formwork or even pipes or essentially interior design art deco pieces that are gonna be large, essentially human scale. So for construction, we're trying to really refine those design guidelines so that we can meet those tolerances, as well as give them a technology that, that would really add value to them in both speed and scale. You're not talking about adding centimeters on a plate. Can you talk about some of the kinds of sizes of parts that the Swarm has been able to address 
or the value proposition is to be able to have a system where you can add as much floor space or as much hardware as you need, depending on your needs. So that would mean that if you have a object that is 10 feet long, then that's not a problem. What we have right now is a beta platform. This beta platform essentially gives the value, shows the value of cooperative 3D printing, as well as having a scalable manufacturing platform where you can add space by adding more floor space and adding more speed by adding more hardware. Uh, we're trying to focus on the prefab, uh, prefabrication construction practices. Now, specifically within that segment, we're really trying to make sure that we stay within the structural design guidelines so they can be able to use our formwork for more than just facades and art deco pieces, building forms that would be part of the building that add structural integrity. So really focusing on those segments such as precast or architectural cast stone, that's what we're focusing in construction, specifically that of formwork that is more into the prefabrication of construction instead of actually printing in place. The idea would be that you would build many of these forms that will build the whole building and it will be more like placing Legos and then just taking them to the site. We also think that it's important for the, the environment. Being able to 3D print a specific part to pour concrete or some other type of material to be able to essentially put into this form. If you're able to use it more than three times, then you've done your best. With 3D printing, you get that reusability. We're talking about forms and form liners that are being able to be used up to 80 pores. And for construction, sometimes that really matters. Sometimes you have patterns that are essentially built over and you wanna have the same essentially design guidelines or those measurements need to be exactly the same. The construction industry has a global carbon footprint and that footprint is essentially in different facets of the construction process. But one of the biggest places where there's a lot of waste is formwork, uh, formwork production. So where you can use forms that can be used more than three times, you add value terms as well as eliminate the construction waste helping with the, the global carbon footprint in construction. You can see formwork happen in, in different places. You can talk about plumbing, that's a type of formwork, or it can be industrial forms, you know, your tanks that go under the buildings. Right now, the way it's done, it's either through manual labor, or essentially you have someone that is going to prefabricate the walls and facade wall systems, and then they ship them in. Sometimes these can be made out of aluminum, it can be made out of steel. What we're trying to do essentially is eliminate all the need for so much manual labor. So instead of using three steps where you use manual labor in order to achieve certain geometries, you essentially 3D print those parts and then you assemble them and then you eliminate the need to be able to need so much carpentry to be able to support these geometries or shapes. We're doing a lot of research and development in terms of material science and what we can support. Later, we plan to be supportive of pellet extrusion. Instead of filament reels, you have little pellets. Do you also use 3D printing in other ways to help develop your platform? What are all the ways that you're using 3D printing to help you ex explore the project that you're making? even aside from uh, the actual printers that you're making? Right now, most of our prototypes have at most 80% that are 3D printed on our robots, from our robots. And we use our system and then place them on our prototypes. 
but it keeps us very nimble when it comes to our production. We also use it for other customization parts. When you're doing research development, you need rapid prototyping and rapid prototyping comes in really handy for hardware development. So we've used this for calibration. We've used it to be able to do floor layouts. The idea of having mobile 3D printers or multiple 3D printers working together, you are breaking 3D printers out of the box and putting them on wheels, giving them some autonomy as well. And this autonomy essentially is reflective on our chunking algorithm. Essentially, if you give it a design, that design then is chunked into individual pieces. And let's say you have four, four robots, then it's going to then individually parse them into four pieces. So before it hits the printer, it knows specifically what printers are going to, where they're going to start their print job and what print job they're getting. There's two hardware components to these printers. So you have the printer itself, and then you have essentially the mobile platform. This mobile platform picks up the printer, puts it in place, and then goes back and gets another printer. This mobile platform, we sometimes call it a truck as well, it also is going to do other multiple processes, lay down build plates, and then come back and build and put more build plates depending on what the actual object size is. So it will do multiple processes outside of just putting the printers in place. Pandemic's been terrible for everyone, supply chain specifically, but it also has opened a lot of people's eyes to be able to see how they can use additive manufacturing and you know, bridge the gap within the supply chain. Uh, let's talk in more detail about how you participate in the Autodesk Technology Center outside network. What has that been like? The outside network, they have a, an array of different programs available to the residents. And it's these programs that really connect us to these individuals or topic points that we want to learn more from. And that allowed us to do some pilot projects with some of these architects and architecture firms and really help us with the design guidelines of our technology. These construction firms have, have also told us a lot of information outside of fabrication. They're like, okay, we love the idea of digital fabrication. These are our needs currently. And those needs sometimes have nothing to do with the need of 3D printing. One thing that has really changed, really understanding how to meet your customer online. I think that, that has been probably the biggest learning within this pandemic. With, within the collaboration, I think that we've had some lessons as well of how to collaborate best with our pilot users. Those pilot projects, that has all been remote. We're still doing fabrication and collaborating and we're doing the manufacturing here in Arkansas while they're doing the designs out in Boston or San Francisco. And essentially that communication line has been something that we've really refined, setting up meetings every other week so we can essentially collaborate and see where we're at and regrouping. And all that has been very accessible during the pandemic with Autodesk's help. Autodesk has done a really good job of making sure that the outside network is connected either through Slack or the program curriculum that they offer the residents. And these communication lines and this communication tools have really helped us essentially bridge the gap within the pandemic and this new normality, as well as helping us define what it is to operate during a total remote state. So I think it's been good, but we've been in good hands as well with Autodesk and, and their community. And they do such a good job of making sure that we stay connected. Tell us your impressions of the shifting roles for 3D printing within the field today, from your perspective. 3D printing is taking off into industrial applications. And these industrial applications exist in construction, aerospace, and automotive. 
we realize that these firms really don't understand what are the efficiencies or what are the actual skill sets that we need in order to be able to support this technology or these manufacturing processes. So we're seeing a lot of demand within the digital uh transformation or the digital prototyping landscape, more or less, for people to support the printers, for people to know how to operate the printers, for people to know how to design with a digital fabrication guidelines. And these things have now transformed the industry. So to understand what are the jobs in manufacturing going forward, instead of thinking, okay, I'm really good with my hands and I can use these tools and I can do these tools. Now it's, look, I'm really good with a computer and look at the things that I can do with the manufacturing profile to be able to meet these surface finishes or to meet these surface design guidelines. I, I think for 3D printing in general, it's just the idea of 3D printing is now becoming a real tool or a real asset to manufacturers to say, we can use 3D printing, not just for prototyping. We can use it for operations. We can use it for product development. We can use it for just development in general. So I think that's what we're seeing right now, just the idea of 3D printing now becoming a mainstream technology for industrial applications. And with that comes in, what are the skill sets? These trades now become into new jobs popping up here and there. It's a great time to be in 3D printing. There's a lot of promising technologies, a lot of promising companies out there. Ultimaker, can't brag about Ultimaker enough. They're so big. Uh, they have such an influence within the industry. Kira Engine's such a hefty part within our development. So with the development of new hardware technology and with the new development of software, open source technologies, it's the sky's the limit for 3D printing at this point. What are some ways that you've been thinking about having worked with people remote all around the world through the Autodesk Technology Center Outside Network? through some of your research partners at other research institutions and some of your pilot customers and, and, and potential customers. What has that inspired you to, to think about how the workplace is changing and, and how people will get their, their work done? Uh, all industries are essentially now trying to understand what is the future of work. Do you really need a desk to be able to do your job in a specific place or can you just work remotely? I think that essentially finding that even balance between what that's going to be is where we're at right now. Uh, a lot of industry players are saying, we don't really need the office and, and this can save us costs for operations and we're going to do things this way. Your new workplace is now your digital footprint and how well you're able to cater to that and be there. So I think that future of work is an interesting one. It's a very interesting one, but I think it all comes down to understanding that people have really realized that you can do some things remotely finding that balance and those tools that can get you those communication lines to be able to essentially be there in time all the time and not have to think that you're not there when you are there. How can you really respect the fact that somebody who's not physically there is still working in parallel with you and is in the office accomplishing things without being in a physical office? It's a really interesting challenge. Where you are within your project deadlines where your teammates are, so project management. But for business, it's it's been more or less understanding how to have a voice in a digital world and staying plugged in and finding that balance because that balance is really necessary. You can say that you're gonna be there, but you're not really there and that really hurts your presence digitally. 
Now, it, it would be ridiculous for me to omit the opportunity to ask you, for, from a talking out of perspective, how do you see the, the capabilities of 3D printing kind of folding mm-hmm. into this question of how work is changing? I think that the future of work in manufacturing is very much automation, but augmentation as well. Meaning that there's still going to be personnel that's going to be needed even for lights out manufacturing. But the augmentation is what's going to transform the ability or the way we actually work within the manufacturing setting or construction setting. Being able to have a technology that can do multiple processes that are going to be automated and having less manual labor is going to absolutely shake up the way we see manufacturing in general. And you guys can learn more about AMBOTS through AMBOTS.net, or you can follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, as well as Twitter. Please hit like or follow us. It'll be great. Thank you very much for being on the show. Oh, we love it. Thank you so much, Matt. We're happy to be here. Ed, thank you very much for joining Talking Out of today. My pleasure. Uh, it's great to talk with you again. I'm Ed Coe. I'm the shop supervisor for the additive shop at the Autodesk Technology Center in San Francisco. How did you first encounter 3D printing? I first encountered it in the back of a robot magazine. It was uh, an advertisement for a 3D printer probably in 2007. It seemed so far out of my league because these things sold for tens of thousands of dollars. The first hands-on experience, or at least getting my hands on a print, was probably when I was in school, Virginia Tech. I studied industrial design, and we had a project where uh, we were designing these laminated forms. We called them planar flow forms. And I designed a, a serving platter that had these elegant nested shapes and could not find a way to actually manufacture the thing. So I was encouraged by my professor to try 3D printing it. And I did and got my hands on the first 3D print and it was shockingly polygonal, like so much sanding because I hadn't gotten the STL settings right. And rookie mistake, everyone does it their first print, but you learn. I think everybody goes through their own form of onboarding and newbie understandings of what the technology is until they find it. So in undergrad, I was in the industrial design program at the College of Architecture and Urban Studies at Virginia Tech from a professor named Nathan King. He also works at Autodesk. So I was really all at the same time being exposed to all these different 3D printing technologies in the last six months of my undergrad. And I got bitten by the bug. I, I you know, stayed on for a couple months after to working at ICAT, the Institute for Creativity, Arts, and Technology. I stayed on at ICAT for a bit and was working in that shop. Kind of got to see what additive can do, like the triangle between design, material, and manufacturing. And it's a fascinating exploration of that triangle because you can iterate so rapidly. And with, with a manufacturing process like CNC, there's a lot of lead time and actual manufacturing time that requires you to be on hand and engaged with the process. With 3D printing, you can iterate rapidly and, and see immediate feedback of when you make design changes, how they affect the final outcome. That rapid iteration really feeds my brain in, in a way that's unique to the process. 
trace the, the route from your studies to you filling the role that you have now. Gotcha. It is a long and winding road. It always is. And you never end up where you thought you were going to be. I started working a, a temporary job at Virginia Tech at the, the lab at ICAT. And for that time, I thought I was going to be going into defense contracting for coding. And the security clearance was taking a, a long time. And it got me really in tune with these machines. I, I had nothing to do but sit with the machines and work with designs all day. And that got me very interested in what I could do. Because the first time you print something, you're going to print paperweights. And you're going to print paperweights for probably a couple weeks. And some people then are content to keep on making toys and paperweights. But some people see the technology and want to see just where it can go. I'm one of those people. So I, I try to, to push the technology into a place that is just on the edge. So that way you can keep moving it forward slightly. I started to become, as I told my students, not an expert in 3D printing, because that's a, a moving target. You can't become an expert in something that's changing all the time. But you can become an expert at learning about a field that changes all the time. I became an expert in learning about 3D printing. So I, I try my best to stay current. It's a moving target. You have to constantly engage with the technology, see what's new in the field, get your hands on new tools, which is expensive. <laughs> but I've found that preparation of approaching things from a design background and also from a research background allows me to fulfill my role at Autodesk really well, where people are constantly asking more from the technology and I'm there to facilitate it. So tell us about the Autodesk Technology Centers and your connection with them. So the Autodesk Technology Centers are a network of people in the design and make field that focuses on connecting people with tools, but also with each other. I am that interface layer often between someone's design and the tools. We encourage users and residents to work with the tools directly, but I'm often in the conversation acting as someone who can speak on behalf of the tools. I, I love this notion of speaking on behalf of the tools. To the untrained user, they can be a bit of a mystery. They'll change designs and not know why one thing happened versus another. And you know, they take some love and care to give them the best life possible and the best designs possible. So something like we have some object 3D printers that are Connex 500s. They're older machines. They require some careful tuning of designs and material settings to to get the most out of a print. And that isn't something that a user would know off the bat. A user or a resident would want some input on what materials to use, what combinations to use. And it's a, it's a tremendous value for someone who's coming in and maybe they want to experiment. They know that they, they should be looking into an area, but they're not familiar with the technology yet. They don't really know its strengths and weaknesses, and you can speak to it very directly. How is additive manufacturing and 3D printing being leveraged at the Autodesk Technology Centers and throughout the outside network? I would say there are three ways that residents engage with additive manufacturing. 
The first is the oldest rapid prototyping. The idea that you are prototyping form for a process that may not be 3D printing. You're just trying to get something out of the computer and into the physical world so you can use it as an iteration that will then eventually lead up to another manufacturing process. My opinion, the most boring way, but... <laughs> Still probably 55% of what people do. Yeah. So in rapid prototyping, you ask different things of the printer. You're asking for accuracy. You're asking for it to be as close to the original design as possible. This, this is a different stress on the machine compared to something like experimental printing, which is the second way that our users use 3D printers. You know, way back when the Autodesk Technology Center was used to print with coffee grounds on the Z-Core printer, Way, way back when I talked about 3D printing on fabric, that sort of idea. That same group of professors at one point had students that made 3D printed fabrics themselves. The idea that you're making this structure that interlinks and becomes a fabric by the course of its design. That's a different type of uh, approach to additive manufacturing. And then the, the, the final one, which is a different engagement with the technology, is using it for end parts. And we've seen a tremendous uplift in that, where someone is making a 3D print of a part that's going to go on a robot, or going to go inside a camera, or house a camera, or waterproof something that is a valve mechanism inside a robot. Those are all use cases that we've seen at the Autodesk Technology Center. You're making a part that's going to be, by its nature, exactly what what you need not rapidly prototyped but the final part of, of the process and that's really it's a really rewarding design cycle there if you're making a, a part out of the material that you're going to eventually use with the manufacturing process you're going to use you can get this very true-to-life iteration where you can swap out parts and use them for testing with every model that you create. So you can create a bunch of jaws for a robotic gripper and swap them out and use them and do testing with them without having to infer how it would work in metal or infer how it would work machined or infer how it would hold up under pressures that were larger. Or it, It's using the, the end, end use material is a more accurate way of testing with 3D prints. How did the Autodesk Technology Center change uh, with the arrival of COVID-19? We started to see ourselves a bit differently during COVID-19 as we realized that our value wasn't necessarily the fact that we are a space to make things, but a way of connecting users to tools and to each other. So. During the pandemic, we focused a lot more on providing design advice and guidance to our residents, in addition to some printing as a service. Several residents reached out for hopes that we could print some models. And we worked with them to, at first to do some design iterations, knowing what the machine would want. So we acted as the first iterations uh, of their prototype giving them feedback that they would get from a 3D printer, but without wasting material or without us going in um, and potentially putting us at risk. 
And then things opened up a bit where we needed, especially for our object 3D printers, to, to print regularly to keep the machine going well. You know, maintenance became a different sort of beast during the pandemic because these machines weren't designed to sit. So some of these parts that were given to us by residents fit the use of the printer and would allow us to explore their design with a physical print in addition to keeping our machines healthy. So we were able to print for a number of residents these, in, in some cases, production parts, some case end-use parts, and in some cases, prototype parts for holding electronics housings, and that, that worked out well for us. But I would say the biggest change was seeing myself as more than a machine maintainer, but seeing myself as a subject matter expert. We had one group that was working on printing a, a rapid prototype of a electronics enclosure. And I had to talk with them as a subject matter about the limits of the process they were using. We were object 3D printing. And the object 3D printer is incredibly accurate, can print extremely thin walls. The caveat being everything that is vertical or greater, everything over 90 degree angle, has to be supported with support material. And that support material has to be removed manually or water jet off, like with a power washer. And we went through a number of design revisions trying to get it so their part didn't have any overhangs that would require the washing of the print. The reason being that in the process of power washing the part and removing the support material, you could break these thin structures. It required some care and attention to detail, speaking on behalf of the 3D printer, where in the past a user could just print a part and learn immediately. Because we had limited access to the tools, had to act as that sort of interface between the user and the tool and doing the, their prototypes in my head before they did them in person. And that you were able to contribute, keeping it at a high level, you were able to contribute how to approach that challenge. Because first of all, you knew about it, even without being next to the machine, you knew that would be a challenge and you were able to, to help them address it. That seems like a quite a value compared to somebody who's walking up to the machine for the first time, not trained on how to use it and is ready to you know, produce a part. Even if they're trained on how to use it. Good point. You can be trained on how to use an Ultimaker, but not necessarily know the best way to design for the Ultimaker. And that's a critical difference. We train all of our users to use our machines before they're allowed access, but we don't train them on design guidelines. That's more of something that, that someone learns through experimenting with the, the machine. And I really value that sort of uh, iterative process. You get to know the machine at a deeper level than if someone tells you whether something will work or not. But when time is of the essence and when access is limited, you have to do that. You have to weed out those designs and guide someone through the process before they can print the part. So that way we save material, that way we save time. Why is exploring the ways that teams and companies collaborate using additive manufacturing valuable for preparing for the directions that manufacturing and design may go in the future? What I find really encouraging is as the outside network has grown, we have seen more and more residents working on more um, diverse projects. 
and that sort of diversity feeds it and the the ideas from all these other groups can come together and help inform say a new entrepreneurial venture that's just starting out may be able to pull from the expertise of like 150 teams that doesn't just span a spectrum of different applications but spans a spectrum of location too I think we've seen this trend towards uh, a more decentralized manufacturing system. And additive manufacturing is the furthest stream of that where you can have an Ultimaker and in, in one side of the country printing a part and then an Ultimaker on the other side of the country printing a part. And you don't need to ship anything between them. Each team can evaluate the the design independently without shipping things back and forth. I think traditional manufacturing and centralized manufacturing will always have a place, just like in-person meetings on site with a, a company will always have a place. But we've noticed that likewise, likewise Zoom has you know, changed how people work across different locations. This decentralized fabrication and collaboration mode of using AM in different areas can also add a different dimension to a company's business plan. Tell me more about that. Think aloud with me how this might be useful to, say, a research group and industry group or a startup with a decentralized team. Well, if your researchers are in the UK and researching something and they have designs that they've come up with that might be useful to the engineers in the US, then they can just send those designs to be printed in the U.S. without ever sending a part, dealing with customs, dealing with lead time of shipping, dealing with manufacturing lead times on, on one side. And say there's an error in those parts, you would normally have to go through an entire iteration process, which would include shipping and manufacturing, whereas now you just have to deal with uh, manufacturing on its own in each location. How do you anticipate that companies will expand their usage of AM, including 3D printing, like FFF style, but not exclusively, in the future? Depends how much you've drank of the Kool-Aid. I am a, a believer in AM as a force for good change in the world. I, I believe that additive manufacturing and a decentralized manufacturing method has a lot of benefits. I don't think it eclipses the good that can come from a centralized manufacturing method, say injection molding. But I think it's added a different option. Injection molding was the default for making large volumes of plastic parts. It still serves its place as large volume of plastic parts, but not viable as a small scale manufacturing technique. There wasn't really a good solution to like production runs up to a, a thousand or fifty thousand even for plastics but also for metals. AM is affordable high quality alternative to the costs that would be associated with doing low volume injection molding. But the, the other thing I would say is that's viewing it in the lens of the 3D printed parts being your end part. And that's only a small component of the, the three different ways that we use AM here. I think from a iteration standpoint, it's really solidified itself. You could have engineers working from home, iterating on parts with a low cost FFF machine, 
instead of relying on the shops to do all the work at a large scale facility. If you're an auto manufacturer, it's a lot quicker to iterate if each of your engineers is working from home with a printer on their desk than necessarily having a shop facility in the middle of the campus that's doing all of the production. It also requires those users to know how to use a 3D printer, but they've gotten easy to use. They've gotten really easy to use. It's a balance, right? You want to have machines that are easy to use, but also approachable to hack. If you make a machine have too many baby bumpers on it, then you can't get your hands dirty if you really want to, to optimize for a specific part. So I think it's important that you still have the settings available to fine tune the parameters for a part, but also have a mode where it's like a control P print. And the reality is at some point we'll get there. It's a long road to get to control P print. For more advanced stuff, you can fiddle with the settings you know, to get it perfect. But if you want a part out of the machine, the basic ones will do. And for a lot of people, they just want to have a part out of the machine. I'm always going to be tinkering with the machine, so I'm always going to choose one that I can modify. But I see that trend being really positive of having more people have access to a manufacturing method. Because, you know, no one bought an injection molder to play with at home. And the more people we have getting their hands dirty with making and manufacturing and designing, I think the better things are. We get more ideas out there and more people playing with ideas. And I think that trend is something I'm really excited for. And that sounds like a perfect response to go out on. Thank you so much for joining Talking Out of today. It's really been great to have you on here. My pleasure. Thank you. So my name is Jerry Evans. I'm the president of a Canadian nonprofit organization called Neo Technologies, Inc. We were formed in 2015 by a charity called Hope and Healing. How did you first encounter 3D printing? I guess like most people, I think I first read about it and was intrigued. That was probably, you know, over 10 years ago. I was fascinated with the, the thought that you could take molecules, if you will, and refashion them into a different shape. At the time, it made me think of uh, Star Trek and Jean-Luc Picard with the replicator, which is a molecular assembler, ordering up some tea or old gray hot. And it, I, I think that's where 3D printers are, are headed. We're at the rudimentary stages of doing that, but we're already doing some pretty amazing things with them. Most of my career was in, in the area of finance, but most of my formal training, my education was in engineering, and I missed that part of my life. And I am one of these people that loves to tinker. And when I heard about 3D printing, I had to get one. I did get one and started tinkering around with it. And then when I had the opportunity to get involved with new technologies, it was a no-brainer because it was combining a lot of my corporate building skills, my project management skills, and the ability to use engineering and science and 3D printing to, to do good. Tell me what the company is and what it does now in greater detail. Yeah, so Neo Technologies has, from the outset, been involved with the idea that there's got to be a better way to do prosthetics and orthotics, to use digital methods, because the way in which prosthetics and orthotics are made requires a lot of manual uh, effort. And it's a time-consuming, messy process. And there's a tremendous shortage of prosthetists and orthotists in the world. 
And backed by a charity with the, that came up with this concept, is, is there a way to speed up this process that's been around for many years and where there's a shortage of trained practitioners to actually put out the, the devices that are required? There's a huge shortage of devices the, that are required and on an annual basis. The thought was, if you could apply digital technologies, could you increase that throughput? And so we embarked on that idea. We did a kind of a proof of concept. We worked on doing some clinical studies and over, over the time we've uh, improved our innovation and we're at a point now we're actually deploying our product to low-income countries and, and you know, we have installations in Africa and Southeast Asia and so forth. And I can say that it's, it's just gaining steam. We're going to be doing many more of these installations. Now, a lot of the talking additive listeners uh, probably are familiar that there have been projects in various assistive devices, aesthetics within the world of additive manufacturing, going back 30 years even. I was wondering if you could take a little bit to talk the, the difference, the going after the challenges of lower limb right. versus some of the upper limb, particularly some of the upper limb elements that are less load bearing or have a range of, of purposes. Uh, you know, I think you you hit the nail on the head when you said load bearing. I mentioned this earlier that there's a tremendous shortage of practitioners that are doing this kind of work worldwide. And in any given year, there's about 38 million people that are in need of a prosthetic or, or, or an orthotic, and only about 10% of the need is being met. Do the math, uh, let's call it 40 million to take 10% off, you've got 36 million or a little bit less than that that are not getting a prosthetic or orthotic device. 70% of those are in need of a lower limb prosthetic or orthotic. If you want to talk about it as a market, the majority of the market is in lower limb. But that is, as you point out, the lower limb is load bearing and it becomes more of a challenge from a number of perspectives. So certainly from the engineering uh, side, from the efficacy and from, from a comfort point of view, you have to support someone's body weight on this device, which is far different than doing an arm where it's typically cosmetic if you're doing a 3D printed arm, hand. Lower limb requires uh, that you support the body weight. So we, we took on that challenge thinking that if we could do that, we might be able to do the other things a little more handily. So the lower limb, you have to take into account the anatomical features. So you have to have a really good understanding of, of the human anatomy. You have to have a great understanding of kind of science and engineering in, turn, in order to properly distribute load and weight. And you have, to, you have to take all these things into account. And the practitioners that do this are skilled practitioners that have been honing their skills, at least from an educational point of view, for at least three or four years in order to to really be able to to do this correctly and to support the body weight and and the things that you read about you mentioned upper limb and, and maybe that's a little easier and I, I agree it's a little easier the upper limb that you hear about you often hear about in the press that a student somewhere has designed something using uh, fusion or solid works or something like that and prints something and sends it off to africa that that's great that's really good stuff. I think it would be wonderful if you could do a lower limb that way, but we just need somebody that's skilled and to, to provide that intervention, provide design elements that are going to support the body weight. And we're not there yet. Maybe someday we'll be able to design a black box, scan somebody and press a button that ultimately something comes out of that uh, 
you know, 3D printer that looks like a microwave oven or something like that, but we're not there yet. It'll take some time. Right now, we're not using 3D printers really in a production process, but where you have a custom piece, like a prosthetic socket, which has to fit perfectly to a patient, that's a perfect application of that. So we 3D print the prosthetic socket, and then we, as part of the print process, we attach an adapter to the bottom of the print job, which then connects into the mass produced portion of the prosthetic device, which is what we refer to as the limb kit, where there is a column, which is you know basically an aluminum shaft with adjustment capabilities for, for different stance and angle angling capabilities. And then there's a foot and those come from a production process that, you know, is basically off the shelf. You can mass produce those. So 3D printed custom piece along with the limb kit produces the prosthetic device. Before we ever uh, set out to do any of the design work that we did to create our innovation, we spent a lot of time speaking with folks, practitioners in these low-income country settings that we would hopefully be supporting. And so we actually went to Africa. We went to Uganda. That was the first place that we started playing around with this concept at a hospital called Corsu. And we went and studied that. We spoke to the practitioners. We studied the way in which they do things, the workflow from for creating a prosthetic or an orthotic device using the, the manual process. And we tried to understand where their pain points, where were the, the pain points, what was the most difficult, what was the most time consuming, and keeping in the back of our mind, where could we leverage technology, digital technologies to help speed up that process. And keeping in mind the digital side of things and the technology side of things, we also had to keep in mind infrastructure, what's available on the ground. One of the challenges we face in, in a lot of the locations we go to is just uh, power supply, consistent power supply or consistent internet. We end up with internet uh, connectivity issues. And then we have to keep in mind environmental considerations. So things like heat and humidity. And then finally, we had to think about cultural aspects right down to the point of what color do you print the prosthetic socket in? Do you, can you print it in white or in Africa? Do they prefer that you print it in brown because they don't want to draw any kind of attention to their prosthetic limb. So we took all that information into account. And as I say, the, the cost side of things and the infrastructure side of things was important. We, we we just cannot go into these locations and take our ideas of infrastructure, take our ideas of economic models and, and just plop them into place. That just never works. So with all that information, with all that background information, we tried to, to, to design a process that would fit into what they do with this least amount of disruption and, and kind of pick our spots to, to introduce different things that would help with the innovation. And even our software that we've designed has tools within the software and the process within the software is akin to what they do in the traditional manual fabrication methodology. We're very pleased with the process we took. We have a couple of locations where we have champions on the ground that are now producing 3D printed devices. And that's their go-to to do these things as opposed to doing it the traditional way. That's what we were hoping to achieve. And I, I think we're starting to see that happen. What is uh, Neotech's connection with Autodesk Technology Centers uh, geographically and, and also in terms of support? 
we have the good fortune to also be located in Toronto where they have one of these centers. It was a great fit for us to to start working with the, the, with the workspace that Autodesk Technology Center uh, provides us with and all the equipment that we can avail ourselves of. And it's, it's just been a, a great opportunity for us to, to do a lot of the work that we do. Before we even got started at the Technology Center, we availed ourselves of the software. As we were looking for funding for NEA Technologies, we also look to Autodesk Foundation, their yeah. uh, corporate philanthropy side of things. And so Autodesk Foundation was was very helpful, very generous to us and provided us with funding for the work that we're doing in technologies. And that was our you know, kind of major introduction into Autodesk and from there propelled us into the technology centers. And we've been at the technology center, I think in Toronto now for probably about three years. These technology centers are great workspaces. They have lots of equipment that we can avail ourselves of. That's anything from 3D printers to CNC machines and circuit uh, board fabrication stations and things like that. We use a lot of these tools and we're quite fortunate to be part of the technology center because to acquire those tools on our own or to be able to go out to different locations to rent or avail ourselves, you know, through other suppliers would be very expensive for a nonprofit like ourselves. So, so how is additive manufacturing, 3D printing being leveraged in your workplace? You have the unique situation of both making a product that actually has 3D printed components and being able to benefit from some of the capabilities of additive manufacturing to help your products. The end result of what we do is using additive manufacturing and producing a definitive device. Definitive being meaning a device that a patient with a disability will end up wearing. You know, they wear the devices that we produce and they come off of a 3D printer and they're dolled up in, in different ways with cosmesis and so forth, but they end up wearing those. We're I suppose unique in that way. A lot of other organizations do prototyping and experimenting with additive manufacturing. We actually take it to the finishing line, if you will. But having said that, in, in the work that we do, there are a number of things that we also do in order to get to that definitive product. So we do scanning, we do computer modeling, but perhaps most importantly, in, in the additive manufacturing side of things, we do 3D printing. And quite often, the work that we do also requires that we 3D print parts for some of the, the work that we do. So we modify 3D printers. We print 3D printed parts that we use in the printers to, to actually do the work that we do. So we, we modify the printers with 3D printed componentry. And we, we because uh, some of our work involves some manual assembly work and so forth, we can 3D print jigs and various tools and, and gadgets that help the clinicians, the practitioners that put together these prosthetics and orthotics can help them in their own space to, to work with these, these guides, if you want, that are 3D printed for the purpose of you know, fabricating prosthetics and orthotics. So we use 3D printing a lot, and it's often our go-to place for doing prototyping as well and for, for doing different parts. Our team is mostly centralized here in, in Toronto, Canada. Having said that, the innovation, the tool chain that we have come up with, we go to different countries and primarily in hospitals and clinics, we deploy, we install the tool chain. And so we actually arrive with most of the equipment. It, it comes with us on, on the airplane and we will go to the uh, hospital and provide a certain amount of training at the hospital. 
which involves everything from soup to nuts, from the scanners to the 3D printers and the use of our software. And then we support those, those people. Once we leave, getting skilled at, at what, what you see on the computer and then ultimately what comes out on the 3D printer requires a bit of uh, learning as well over time. So we continue to support our practitioners where we've installed the tool chain afterwards remotely through the internet. That has been particularly important during the, the pandemic, where it's been virtually impossible to, to travel to these locations. We've been shut down. It's been really hard on the, the places where we have deployed our innovations, and it's been hard on NIA as well, because most of our work is outside of Toronto. It is in low-income countries, and we rely on ongoing funding. We use you know, all manner of things. We use the Zoom, Zendesk for tech support. We use our own online platform that we've developed with the help of funding from the Autodesk Foundation and so forth. So it's, it's been a challenging time. Has additive manufacturing been at all helpful in that context as far as on the communication side and following up with sites that have ongoing work well, additive manufacturing is philosophically an amazing concept because here we are in Toronto and we're speaking to somebody in Africa and it's one thing to describe something and show them something over Zoom digitally, but it's quite something different when we design something here in Toronto and we send them the file and they can 3D print it over on their side of the pond, if you will. That is, is as good as it gets. They're doing that with the space station as well, sending files back and forth. But uh, additive manufacturing gives you that capability that it was otherwise unachievable. And in, in addition to, to actually fabricating the devices that and, and empowering the, the practitioners in Africa and places like that, low-income countries, to actually develop prosthetics and orthotics on their own. It gives us also an ability to communicate in a different way that, that we couldn't do before. We're actually communicating in 3D, if you will. That's a beautiful picture. The quality of having these fabricators at different endpoints, crossing geographies, to put them on the same page for communication and development seems really valuable. Have you been making use of the various additive manufacturing technologies at Autodesk Technology Centers? And did you use them at all during COVID? The, the first part of your question is, have we taken advantage of the Autodesk Technology Center 3D printers? Y yes, indeed. Absolutely. They have various 3D printers there. They have various types of printers and various brand names and so forth. Most of our work is with FDM, FFF printers because of the price point. And so ultimately what we do has to be designed for FDM. But as we think about the future and we think about expanding what we do into high income countries, which we are looking at right now, we are using SLS and we're using MJF and so forth, which we have been able to, again, use at the Autodesk Technology Centers. And it's, it's been a huge advantage for us, again, because to go with that and get that from a service bureau is, you know, terribly expensive to, to tinker around that way. During the pandemic, yeah, we have not been able to make use of their equipment. It, the, this technology center has been shut down. It's still not open, but we'll be going back there hopefully fairly soon. Yeah, while the, the physical locations did shut down, uh, did you find it useful to participate in the outside network and get some additive consulting or any other networking related 
help. Uh, my colleagues at uh, NIA are indeed uh, working with other members of the outside networks. And yeah, I know that we've exchanged ideas uh, through the network. We problem solve. People will, will have within their own area of study, they'll be doing different things that we hear about that we had never thought about within our scope, but we hear of some things that uh, are just, wow, that's a great idea. I hadn't thought of that. We can probably apply that to some of the, the work that we're doing at NIAM. So it's been invaluable, that relationship and that ability to collaborate with others through the outside networks. Yeah, it's, it's great. So considering the challenges that you and most companies face over the past year, are there ways that your team and, and how you develop, solve, and deploy it will change in a positive way as a result of experiments and, and uh, things learned during COVID. Yeah, I, th I think NIA is going to change a little bit as in the way we approach support, if you will, and in the way we, so this is for our users of our innovation of our digital tool chain, but it also will affect how we as uh, an organization work. We are more decentralized now, obviously because of the pandemic. And it's worked well. Surprisingly, we, you know, I think the world thought that if you did not come into the office, that you would lose productivity. But I think, I dare say that we may have actually increased in productivity, doing things remotely, not having to commute and so forth. And so I, I think we, we will be a little more decentralized going forward. And we will spend more time on providing instruction. We've already been providing some additional instruction, doing mini training sessions, breaking things up into bite-sized pieces, doing it more frequently rather than parachuting in for a week. Once a year, we now do little mini sessions online. And we have acquired certain tools. So for example, video editing tools, video capturing tools and so forth to capture things so that we can create video tutorials, for example. And we post those on our, on our, we have this platform, which I mentioned, which is earlier on the collaborative platform, we call that NeaNet. So we post those up there and, and our users can, can, can view those videos, uh, tutorials on an ongoing basis. So things have changed. Things will probably remain changed some parts of what we do. I think it was a good experiment in a bizarre kind of way to, to take on this uh, different way of, of work. Maybe the one silver lining of the, the whole pandemic. What do you hope to see from 3D printing? Starting off specifically with our industry, the whole idea of digital fabrications of prosthetics and orthotics is taking on steam, just generally speaking in the industry. And, and that's large part because people see the opportunity to, to make the process more streamlined, to make it less costly, to eliminate waste. There is some of that element of being able to cover geographic distances with some of the technology as well and collaborate. I mentioned that we started off in low-income countries and most of our work is aimed at a tool chain that ultimately produces a device on a FDM printer. But as the rest of the industry takes note of what we're doing, not only ourselves, but others, and see the possibilities, we're, we're moving into high-income countries. Our, our software is now being used in high-income countries with high-end printers, if you want, 3D printers. FDM is also being used in high-income countries. We're mostly, frankly, to do 
check sockets to do test sockets and things like that. It's the younger uh, generation embracing the, the digital approach to, to doing things differently. So printing in, in different metals, they're printing biomaterials and things like that. Yeah, the type of and the breadth of 3D printing additive manufacturing in the world is just going to explode and it is exploding. It's just a lot of opportunities. And there are things that you can do through additive manufacturing that you cannot do through you know, traditional types of manufacturing. We are um, actually in the throes of launching a new company and the new company will be focused at doing work in high-income countries. So the software that we developed uh, for low-income country uses will be used in high-income countries and we will um, be changing the software up a little bit to perhaps interface a little bit better with some of these high-end machines and, and high-end scanners and things like that. But ultimately, the software that works in low-income countries works in high-income countries. And we're hoping to set up a little bit of a Robin Hood arrangement here where we set up a high-income country company that sells the software at North American or high-income country prices and use the, the profits that we generate there to offset some of the some of the funding that we need in the nonprofit to the work that we do in low-income countries. So we're very excited about the launch of this new company. We're just kind of in the throes of it. Again, the pandemic kind of slowed us down, but uh, a lot more interest now, and, uh, and hopefully that'll get funded very soon. That sounds really exciting, Jerry. So, Jerry, how can listeners learn more about uh, NIA? You can go to our website, which has got a lot of um, information about everything that we're doing, including the locations we've deployed and our story. But also our YouTube channel has a lot of great videos. And as I say, pictures worth a thousand words. There's some really good footage there. So I'd encourage uh, listeners to have a look at some of that. Thanks, Jerry. And I will, and for listeners, I will put the links to both of those in the show notes. And I thank you very much for joining Talking Out of today. We really enjoy talking. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Uh, my name is Brian Jiang, and I'm a, a senior workshop supervisor at the Autodesk Technology Center in Toronto. And how did you first encounter 3D printing? I think a lot of people encounter 3D printing probably through their post-secondary education, which was for me, I'm based here in, in, in Canada, Ontario, Canada, and I went to McMaster University for my post-secondary degree. So I did Bachelor of Technology, a really great program. It really introduces a lot of the students to industry experiences, what you, not only the theoretical aspect, but really the hands-on aspect, hands-on experiences, mandatory co-op terms. And they obviously have a lot of 3D printers. But at the time, it wasn't something that I was really well acquainted with. But once I finished uh, my Bachelor of Technology program, I thought I, I needed to specialize more as a mechanical engineer because it is such a, a large field. There's a lot of competitiveness in the job field. So I wanted to go further into manufacturing industry 4.0, whatever that might take me. So I ended up pursuing a, a master's degree at the University of Waterloo. And that's really where I specialized in additive manufacturing and 3D printing. I worked at the MSAM lab or the multi-scale additive manufacturing lab. And really my research background was more focused on laser powder bed fusion or SLM, selective laser melting. When you picture 3D printing, you kind of picture lattice parts and generative design and these really cool looking aerospace components. But being in a sort of research background at an academic institution, it was not that glamorous at all. Our job was to take metal powder, iron alloy powder from a distributor and 
basically research how to use this powder for laser powder bed fusion. So it's not generally widely used powder in the industry. So obviously they wanted to see if this steel alloy could be a potential for customers and in the industry to use. So our job was to find sort of these optimized print settings for this set of powder. And the prints that we printed were just the size of your, the end of your pinky finger. They're cylindrical artifacts that we printed and, and cut and studied the microstructure of and, and did a bunch of mechanical tests on. Nothing really interesting on the side of kind of the visual aspect, but that's all subjective too. When you really look at the microstructure and analyze the grain structure and all that, it's, it's super cool stuff, in my opinion, at least. If, if it was very targeted research into characterizing that material, it, it sounds like it prepared you for really understanding processing parameters and, and both for exploring what to try, but also understanding the results. Do you want to talk about some of the ways that you brought those skills forward into how you think about additive now? When people study additive manufacturing, I think a lot of them have a mechanical engineering background, but a major, major portion of additive manufacturing is really the material science behind it. And at least to have a background or knowledge of the material science behind additive manufacturing, especially when it comes to metals, is I think an extremely crucial aspect of additive manufacturing. And so with that sort of research experience and background that I have, I think I was a pretty major asset to the Autodesk Technology Centers when I came into this program. We don't always print in metal here at the Autodesk Technology Centers. We print majorly polymers, but I think having that sort of background in looking at it from like a microstructural standpoint, a, a structural standpoint, that's pretty important, especially when you're printing prototypes or even end user components for customers. And how is uh, additive manufacturing and 3D printing being leveraged in uh, the Autodesk Technology Centers? Hmm. Yeah, I, I would say really, I, I think in every way that you could probably imagine here at the Technology Center in Toronto, I would say, primarily speaking, we use additive manufacturing a lot for prototyping. So residents would come in and, and they have a plan or a project in, in creating uh, an artifact or a, a component or whatever that they're creating. And they, a lot of the time, use our 3D printers to prototype for those components. Obviously, we use it a lot for research. A lot of the product teams like Fusion 360 would come to us and want to use the 3D printers for you know, their own research in, in helping to make better Autodesk products. We also work pretty closely with our internal teams that work with customers globally. And so we get to do a lot of prototyping for them as well and actually producing uh, really cool products that might be generatively designed or incorporated with lattice structure. Yeah. How have design, communication, testing, and fabrication changed for you and the, the outside network participants that you're working with in the wake of the disruption of COVID-19? Yeah. Yeah, so it's a pretty big transition that I had to go through, especially as a senior workshop supervisor. Obviously, my, my role really is in the workshops, using my hands and working with machines, printing stuff. But... Once COVID came and once Toronto was under lockdown, our sort of roles and responsibilities really did have to change, which I think is for the good because it really did challenge me and help me reflect in new ways that I can invest in, invest my kind of career into additive manufacturing and into this company. So for myself, obviously I had less, exp less exposure to machines at the technology centers, but 
I also really did grow my expertise in helping people and, and really into like the consulting side, into the project management roles with sort of the expertise in design to manufacturing workflows, especially in additive manufacturing. So a lot of the times I got pulled into pretty cool projects with customers because of my expertise in additive manufacturing and because of my expertise in not only design, but also manufacturing. And so I think that's a pretty key aspect when you think about design for additive manufacturing, having someone that has an expertise in both is pretty key, especially when they're trying to 3D print prototypes at the end of it. I think having someone with a manufacturing expertise to be able to provide insights into the design of the component before actually completing the design and sending it off to the 3D printer. That's where I came in and and really put in my opinions of you should make this feature a lot bigger because this printer is not going to be able to print that or let's try to add some 45 degree angles or get remove some of those overhangs that we see that will really make the process a lot more efficient and quicker at the end of the day. Because a lot of the residents were no longer able to actually use our facility and a lot of the time really use our machines to get their prototypes, they had to rely on a lot of the third-party kind of vendors that might be around the Toronto or GTA area that are still open, still operating. And so with our kind of expertise in 3D printing and in added manufacturing, they shared their component, their design with us and we provided insight as to the wall thickness or whatever the design could be changed in order for the vendor to be able to print it with ease. For some kind of business critical projects, we did end up printing some parts, some components for whether it be residents or for kind of internal product teams at Autodesk. We went in a couple times a week to be able to actually get some hands-on time on the machine and print, print parts for them. What were some things that you found helpful for talking to those who were maybe less familiar with the technology than you? There were tons and tons of webinars that came up from various different companies in additive manufacturing to explain kind of their processes, like whether it be from Renishaw or EOS or maybe even Ultimaker coming out with videos that are like optimize your parts using binder jetting, optimize your parts using this feature. And a lot of time they're really... I think a, sort of a sales pitch for their own products, but really the beginning kind of intro and the background did really help explain the design for additive manufacturing aspects of a lot of their a lot of their printers or a lot of their you know products or softwares. I really did take my time into learning a lot over the the time of COVID, learning a lot about other technologies, not just laser powder bed fusion, but really diving myself into areas where I'm not quite much of an expert in and being able to serve a lot of the residents and customers that we work with better in that way. After COVID, our our roles and responsibilities really did change. Currently, right now, we are preparing our fabrication workshops for reopening. Here in Toronto, we're still under phased lockdown, I guess you could say. But obviously, we have to do a lot of the work to get the workshops back up and running. We over COVID, we recently purchased some new machines, the Stratasys J55. We got a water jet. We got an Axiom CNC router, a bunch of new kind of fabrication equipment and machine that we have to set up. And so that's def- definitely taken a lot of my time to get those set up and installed at the space. But at the same time, we're also closely working with the residents and the outside network, being able to still provide our expertise in additive manufacturing, in fabrication, robotics, whatever it might be. How do you think that the workplace strategies for using additive manufacturing and and including the outside network 
is going to change going forward. In addition to the return to physical work in the space, or, or at least over, over time, more people geographically crowding in, the outside network also has a lot of people who are geography, or from much further geographies. They're not going to come, they're not going to show up at the site in Toronto, but they will like have questions or they will want to work with you. How do you see that kind of activity taking place in the future? That's a great point that you make because that's something that that not only we'll see in the future, but we are already seeing. Like we like throughout the pandemic, we have shifted to this global innovation kind of network, and so we have resident teams and people applying from not only you know here in Canada or in the states, but we see them all over the world globally in Tokyo or Germany, wherever it might be, and that's a really exciting aspect for them to not only see the the benefit of not just see the benefit of being like physically inside our fabrication workshops but actually see the outside network as a benefit because it's this innovative community and for them to actually glean lean into the expertise that we have with all of our resident teams for us i think that's a major plus and as a workshop staff it's something that I'd really love to see. At the end of the day, a lot of the resident teams, they're not all here to just make prototypes. They're not all here to make parts or components, but some of them are here to glean insights from other teams. Some of them are here to work on virtual or yeah, virtual workflows, not just physical workflows. I think that's where, as workshop staff, we have to evolve or transition into learning more um, about those things, not only in physical manufacturing, but also into industry 4.0 methods like artificial intelligence and machine learning. And I think that's a pretty daunting uh, thing to look at or, or studies. Uh, what are some new roles that you can imagine appearing or growing for 3D printing within the field based on the kinds of conversations and work you've done with residents in the outside network? FFF has had this, this sort of maker space vibe desktop printer vibe where you generally use it to print i don't know chess pieces or dinosaur pieces or whatever it might be that might be fun and that might sit at your desk but really have no end use but obviously that's that's not the case and i think it's becoming more and more advanced more and more reliable a method for end use products today really helpful due to the advancements being made towards composite printing advanced materials that are coming out that can produce really lightweight parts with really good mechanical properties that are like comparable to aluminum. Yeah, I think FFF is a, a pretty cost-effective technology, but at the same time, it will provide uh, really good, reliable, and structural parts at the end of the day. And it's definitely something that people need to leverage more, especially for prototypes or even for end-use products. I want to say, because we see printer farms a lot, you walk into a warehouse, thousands and thousands of printer going at it and creating parts. But I feel like we can do better <laughs> when we look at a concept like micro factories, smart micro factories, and being able to be able to have a, a modular workflow, a modular manufacturing work workflow, and using additive manufacturing for for creating parts or creating components just as efficiently and just as effectively as let's say a continuous line of uh, printer farms. What I know for sure is that additive manufacturing is not going anywhere. It's only advancing. It can only get better from now on and we'll get more and more efficient. 
Brian, thank you very much for joining Talking Additive today. Yeah. Really no appreciate it. Thanks for uh, having me on the show and really appreciate you talking to me. We hope that you have enjoyed our 28th episode for the Talking Additive podcast, Carpet Floor, Concrete Floor, How Our Workplaces Are Changing. Featuring Autodesk Technology Center staff guests, including Yuri Cotaldo, Gabrielle Patton, Ed Coe, and Brian Jong. Featured members of the Outside Network resident teams included David Correa from the University of Waterloo, Marco Cruz from Ambots, and Jerry Evans from Niatech. If you have questions about any topics covered during this episode of Talking Additive, we invite you to post on Twitter or LinkedIn to hashtag TalkingAdditive, all one word. In two weeks' time, we will return with episode 29, the story of Ultimaker Cura. And meanwhile, don't miss our Ultimaker Turns 10 bonus episode series with a new mini episode in the week between each primary episode launch. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the conversation by signing up for news and announcements at talkingadditive.com. Special thanks to Autodesk's Noelle Lewis for making this possible. And thanks again to staff guests, Yuri, Gabby, Ed, and Brian, and resident team guests, David, Jerry, and Marco. Our series producer is Hannah Gabrielle Takini, studio manager, David Roberson, music and episode sound mix by Brian Scary and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbird's Custom Music and Sound. I am host and producer, Matt Griffin, and thank you for listening. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.